Welcome to How for Change. This is the global speaker series where we talk to individuals from all walks of life about how they harness the power of storytelling for positive impact. Hi, I'm Jacques Telemac, your LA host. My name is Leisha Coleman. I'm your New York City host. Hi, my name's Ada Parry. Welcome to London. Thanks for coming, everybody. Yeah. Uh, um, we want to thank Noe House for having us and uh, Super cool putting space. on this beautiful event. And we want to thank Madame Gandhi for gracing us with her presence. Um, I'm going to uh, just introduce her. Those of you who don't know her, she's an electronic music artist and activist. And uh, she was formerly a drummer for MIA and the iconic free bleeding runner at the 2015 London Marathon. Um, <laughs> now she writes music that elevates and celebrates the female voice. So... We're honored to have her. She's awesome. And I'm just going to get out of the way. She's going to come out here and tell you about herself, tell her story. This is about storytelling, and it's going to start with her story. And she does it beautifully, so I'll just get out of the way. Please enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. How are you? Hey, good. Thank you for coming um, on time. That's so wonderful. It's so rare in L.A. We have a full room, so that's super wonderful. And the How for Change community, like y'all are very beautiful, like beautiful community. So it's nice to speak with you this evening. Um, I really connected on what How for Change does because it's focused on the importance of storytelling. And I think uh, only kind of later in my journey did I realize the value of it. And you'll see me wearing my sweatshirt that we're selling this evening, own your voice, don't be afraid. You know, own your voice, don't be afraid, the future is female. You know, own your voice, don't be afraid, be brave. And I think that's definitely been sort of a theme in my journey as a musician, as an activist, as a thinker, as a speaker, as someone in the music industry and out of it. So I think what I'd like to do uh, with our space tonight is to tell my story a little bit. Um, so my name is Kieran. I grew up in New York City to two fairly traditional Indian parents. Um, I loved music. I loved music so much. I went to a private school, and so the, the bus driver would like pick up all the kids with these kind of bougie parents and play classical music in the bus, uh, you know, on the way. But as soon as we would pull away, he would change it back to the hip-hop station. You know, we had to change it back to the hip-hop. So we had me and Harrison and all the other kindergartners, we'd be living our best life on that school bus. And it was all girls, too. So Harrison was the funky bus driver, and me and all the young uh, other kindergarten girls listening to hip-hop 1994 in New York City. It was, it was amazing. So, so for me, I would come back to my parents, and I'd be, like, rapping all the latest Nas, all the latest Lauryn Hill, you know, and they would be like, what is this? You know, what is this? But I loved it, and I kind of liked that it rubbed them the wrong way a little bit too you know for me growing up in New York City you would be learning somebody's truth just 20 blocks north of where you were in Harlem you know learning somebody's truth even now we're in LA 20 blocks south you know in Compton we're learning other people's truth and and I loved that as a, as a young person um, I remember uh, watching all the music videos you know TRL MTV all that kind of thing but as a young person, I definitely picked up on sort of the, the misogyny that I would start to see, you know? Even as I have the vocabulary now as a 30-year-old, but when I was five, I didn't quite have the vocabulary, but a kid can understand when they're being represented on a screen in a way that doesn't quite feel good. And I remember being like watching even Disney movies and feeling, wow, I, I identify more with the Aladdin character than the Jasmine, you know? Aladdin is broke, poor, yet he be out here living his best life on a magic carpet, traveling the world. And Jasmine is a princess, but she has all the, you know, oppression that comes with it. So it doesn't even add up. It doesn't even make sense. So even as a kid, I would pick up on that stuff. When I was nine and the Spice Girls came around, 
It was the truth. It was the truth I've been waiting for my whole life. This is the truth. You know, if you want to be my friend, you know, if you want to date me, you have to get with my friends. Yeah. This was the female solidarity we have been waiting for, you know. And female solidarity, that's the kryptonite of the patriarchy. That's the whole thing, you know. And, and I, I understood that. So I used to love it. This is my truth. And I think that's sort of a theme in the story is understanding the way I felt so lit up and seen by that experience and understanding the difference and how art influenced me way more than other things like politics or, or what have you. I started playing the drums when I was young. That ended up being my main instrument. I liked that the drums was radical. I understood that it was like a feministy kind of tomboy thing. I, I loved it. I loved that whether I hit like this symbol or this other symbol right over here, like it doesn't matter. You know, the drums were more of a free expression instrument than the piano, which kind of was a little more oppressive. Like either you hit the C note or you didn't. And, and I liked the drums, it was more free. So I was playing the drums and my father was actually very encouraging of my drumming. You know, and it didn't really add up because it was all about straight A's and get good grades and all this kind of thing. But he was very encouraging of my drumming. And, uh, and later I put it together, you know, he thought if, if he had a daughter who's like a great drummer, she'll get into a good school. You know, diversity check mark on the resume, you know, smart, she's Indian, plays the drums, you know. So I always tell my dad, I was like, your plan backfired because I still out here be playing the drums, you know, I love the drums. <laughs> so my family, you know, they were very into giving back. That was a big thing. My parents came from India, they moved to the States, sort of classic immigrant story where it's all about we raised you kids to be able to give back and make a difference in the world. And so I ended up getting into Georgetown in Washington, D.C., with sort of this intention of, of pursuing politics and maybe one day working um, in the White House. And at the time, it was Obama's White House. So that actually would have been great. Now, so now we know better. Like, I should have taken that opportunity. That would have been cool. But, um, but that was sort of the thing. And so I remember I would do these, like, internships for the Senate, internships for the mayor's office. Listen, if any of y'all know anything about the mayor of DC, he's the most corrupt mayor in the history of all mayors, okay? So Georgetown is so friendly. We out here trying to get like really great things on our resume working for all these different companies and, and these different internships and things that are supposed to be prestigious, but the irony of the whole thing is that it's just for show. Like it was a bullshit administration to begin with. So I remember kind of feeling that tension. Like, of course I want to make a difference in the world. Of course I want to be a leader as my, as my family would, would talk about a lot. But also, like, what about joyfulness, <laughs> you know? Well, what about not being bored? Hey, what's up? Nice to see so many friends in the audience tonight. Thank you for coming. Um, and I remember being um, in my third year of school and finding out about this, this lounge called 18th Street Lounge in DC. And my friend brought me and she said, every Wednesday there's a reggae band, a reggae band that plays. And I started going religiously to see this reggae band because I loved it, you know? They had singers and performers from all around the world come and sit in with the band. It was a seven-piece Afrobeat big band, like the horn section and the congas and drums and like a whole thing. I had never really seen that before. It was so inspiring. So I used to go religiously and the conga player started noticing that I would always look at him and he was at least somewhat self-aware. Sometimes the men be thinking like, we out here really trying to get with the men. He was a more self-aware conga player. He's like, you love the congas. I was like, I love the drums, you know? I love it. He said, come and play. You know, he encouraged me, come and play. So I used to sit in, sit in, sit in. Little did I know that this band, this reggae band that was playing every Wednesday night in DC was the touring band for a very famous group of DJs called Thievery Corporation. Any Thievery Corporation fans in the room? So Thievery Corporation had this band. Whenever they would go on tour, this was the band that they would be taking because Thievery is just the two producer guys. So they need a live band to play the music live. This is the band. Had no idea. And I had loved Thievery. I only put it two and two together months later. 
Now, I was in my senior year of school, and a gig had come up for thievery, and they needed to fill the role of the percussionist. They didn't have a conga player for the, for the gig. He couldn't make it. So they said, listen, we know this girl. Her name is Kieran. Maybe she can do the gig. She knows the part. She sits in with us. So I said, yeah, yeah, like, what's the gig? Oh, it's Bonnaroo. <laughs> so I'm out here barely trying to put two together for school, and I get a gig, my first gig to play Bonnaroo. So I'm in the van with Thievery Corporation. We're driving to Bonnaroo. I play Bonnaroo. 2010. And I'm, I am, and I'm looking at this sea of people. And the thing is that Thievery Corporation, for folks in the room who are not fans of thievery, they're, they're, they're criticizing the government. They're criticizing racism in communities. They're criticizing um, corporate you know, power and entities. And, and that is activism. That's using really excellent music and then infiltrating it with a message. The irony is that the reverse is actually what's happening all the time in, in the mainstream media today. It's like all this amazing trap music and EDM and stuff that we all work out to and whatever and that we're listening to. And yet all of the lyrics are so misogynist, like every other lyric is like so unbelievably misogynist towards women. I always say, listen, I'm out here like I don't want to have to turn up to the sound of my own oppression. Do you know what I mean? So we have to use a reverse strategy. Like that's why I loved working with thievery. So when this happened for me, a big shift happened in my mind, where I said if the goal that my family wants for me, what I want for myself, is to make a difference in the world, whatever that means, why would I have to do it in a way that's like the traditional route? Why would I have to work for politics and like do an internship that I don't really care about? What if instead I can be using music and the lyrics as a way to influence? Because look at me as a nine-year-old. As a nine-year-old, the very thing that I was influenced the most by was the Spice Girls, more than anything else. I think a nine-year-old understands like what all the people in the government are doing? No. And our, most un our, our quintessential understanding of gender roles, of racism, of all these problematic things, they form when we're kids, not when we're in our, much later in our life. You know? I'm still channeling my inner Kieran, like, she was so dope. Yeah, you feel that, I know. People ask me, like, what would advice would you give to your younger self? I'm like, I'm out here trying to wonder what she would be telling me now. You know, she was living her best life. So when I graduated, I remember having this conversation with my dad. I was like, I don't want to apply for the White House internship. I, I mean, he's like, thievery, what? You know, like they're losing their mind. I want to work in music. I want my day to be music. I want my night to be music. I understand music. I feel joyful. I feel happy. I'll always have the stamina for it. So why wouldn't I keep doing it? So I remember, I, I didn't mention earlier, but the majors that I did at Georgetown, I was a political science major. I was a math major. That's like me, my brown flex and then uh and then i was a win women's studies minor <laughs> yeah 99 on the multivariable calculus exam just saying you know, final so i remember i had this math degree and i i did an internship out here in los angeles in santa monica at interscope interscope records and uh, i had graduated already usually when the kids do the internship they already credits you're not allowed to be an intern if you don't have a college, if you're not in college. Guy was graduated already. So I just drove to Santa Clarita College and I bought some credits so that I can go to Interscope and say, let me have an internship with you. <laughs> yeah. When you want something bad enough, you'll get it. So I did this internship and the head of digital marketing where I was doing the internship, she said, listen, I saw that you're a math major. We're getting all of these uh, Excel spreadsheets from Spotify. Any Spotify folks in the room, YouTube folks? Yeah. So it was 2011 when I had graduated Georgetown and Spotify had just launched in the United States. 
and the, the spreadsheets that they were sending to the labels at Interscope, we didn't even know where to send it. They're like, is it the social media department? You know, is it the marketing department? Is it the, the sales department? Like, so we just went to digital and new media. That's like what the department was called in 2011. And so I finessed out of this internship I started writing these reports about Spotify. I started reading the Excel spreadsheets and just diving into it. What does it mean when Kendrick Lamar puts out a record on Spotify? How many streams, what does it mean? Are we supposed to expect a million streams in the first week? Would we expect a million streams in the first month, per song, per album? What is it, how do we understand this data? So I ended up getting a job at Interscope as their first ever data analyst. And I did that job for two years, studying these patterns in Spotify streams. I care about math, but low-key, I just wanted to work in music. So I was like, whatever avenue I can get in, I'll do it. And when you're young, you have to. You can't be like, oh, what can you do for me? It's like, what can I do for them? Has to be. Anytime I've ever wanted anything, I'm like, always ask what I can contribute first. Even now, when people hit me up, they be asking me first, what are you bringing to the table, bro? Like, it has to be mutual. Yeah. So I got this interest. I worked there as a job for two years. I did that job for two years. Now, sort of towards the end of that two years, the truth is that I wasn't really playing drums that much. And the whole point was to be playing music. I was at a desk, you know? And I also like having to analyze all this, like, booty-shaking fucking hip-hop. Like, I like a lot of it. I like a lot of it. But one time in a meeting, I swear to God, they're like, oh, yeah, no, it's just a TNA video. And I'm like, what's a TNA video? Oh, tits and ass. I'm like, fuck you guys. Don't just reduce us women to the TNA as if it's a normal fucking thing. Why is this? Un our, our misogyny in our culture is so normalized. We don't even think about it. What if we were sensitive? And we said, that's not okay. It's not okay. At the same time, I'm like, listen, male fantasy is the same thing over again. Other men, I don't know what you, I fantasize about other, you know, diverse things. It's like, come on. So we have the male fantasy. I'm not here to tell other people how to make their music, but at least we have to make sure there's an alternative. So along the lines of this thinking, I said, what's happening in the music industry? We have a lot of gatekeepers, a lot of gatekeepers. I said, maybe I can be getting my business degree. Maybe go and do my grad degree in business so that one day I can come back to the industry and, and have, have sort of influence, influence to be signing bands that are more interesting, more nuanced, representing a three-dimensional picture of women, you know? So I started applying for my MBA, and that's 2013. At the same time, I kind of was telling the universe, like, I want to be drumming. Like, I've been drumming my whole life. I want to be drumming. I was so jealous of my friends who were on tour with Katy Perry as the sax player, as the, you know, the guitarist for Justin Bieber or whatever. And Loki, I love Justin Bieber, so I was, like, particularly jealous about that one. Yeah, I love him with my whole heart. He and I are going through some stuff these days. He's a Pisces. I'm a Pisces, you know, but we're going to come out all right. So I remember feeling that kind of jealousy. And... Jealousy can be a dark emotion if you use it the wrong way. It really can't. It can be a dark emotion when you want to throw shade at somebody or you use it to kind of have self-deprecating thoughts. But jealousy can be a very useful emotion because it's telling you exactly what it is that you want for your own life. And so I remember thinking, I want to drum for somebody. And around that time, MIA, who was signed to Interscope, was getting ready to put out her next record. And I saw my boss was going to a meeting with, with Maya, and I begged if I can come. She said, okay, come on, come on, but don't say anything. I said, yes, let's go. So I went to the meeting. I'm digital analyst. You know, you're not supposed to go to anything. They just need you alone number crunching. But I begged if I can go to that one. So I went to that meeting. And, you know, Maya and I have, like, a brown girl to brown girl moment. Like, I see you, you see me, like, as a whole thing. So that moment happened. That was wonderful. She was getting ready to put out her next record. She put out Bad Habits. And, uh, sorry. <laughs> 
not bad habits. <laughs> she put up bad girls. <laughs> that was the song. And, uh, and then and that meeting ended. That meeting ended. But when she left, I remember asking um, Diana Cass, who was her product manager at the time in the meeting, um, you know, Diana, MIA really needs a drummer. Like, I've seen the live show, and, like, she could really use a drummer. It's just a DJ and dancers. Like, what about a drummer? And, and uh, you know, maybe somebody um, female, you know, <laughs> maybe somebody who knows the parts. Um, and so Diana was like, listen, listen, Kieran, like, send me a video, and I'll pass it along to her. So we quickly made a video. Diana sent it along. And shouts out to female mentors in the game. Like, shouts out to, like, women putting women on, folks of color putting folks of color on. We have to, you know, we have to look out for each other because it, we, it doesn't default to us. You know, it doesn't default to us. So, so we sent that video. Maya, MIA, hit me back directly on email. And I knew it was her because it was like all capital letters and like super cryptic email, like hi, that was like the title of the email. And then the body of the email was like all caps, like I love the video, but we're not thinking about the tour just yet. I'll hit you up when we do. And so uh, I said, listen, if your favorite artist like tells you that they like your drumming, which she did in that email, like you're made. You know, I just printed that shit out, hung it up by my email, you know, near my drum. I was like, I was dope. I was so happy. So that end, that was that. Was that. I'm getting my MBA applications back. I got accepted to Harvard. Got accepted to Harvard. So now I'm finishing my time at Interscope. I'm getting ready to move to Harvard to start my MBA. The MIA tour hits me back. And they said, okay, yeah, we want you to come and drum for her. We want you. Now listen, when you talk to the universe and you ask for things, you don't expect to get everything. You know, it's an atomic clusterfuck. Like, okay, yeah, here you go. And the, the dates of the tour were exactly the dates of my, my first semester at school. And so I don't know, what would you do if you're in my position? Like, chance to travel the whole world with one of your favorite artists, or go and pursue your business degree in one of the most prestigious universities, which, albeit, is the breeding ground of the capitalist patriarchy. Okay, that's Harvard Business School for you. <laughs> Little did I know that, but I had this tension. But a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, another mentor, Reka, DJ Reka, she said, you must do both. You must figure it out. Look at the schedule and figure it out. And she actually was right that Maya was only touring on the weekends. Most of the dates were weekend dates, in and out. So my first semester, that's exactly what I did. I used to go to class Friday, 2 p.m., go and play Chile, quickly back Sunday night. Then next weekend, Japan, one date, Japan, Saturday night, boom, come back. Next weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday uh, in L.A. You know, we played, um, what's that thing on 11th? It's like in downtown with the B, the, the Bellagio. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think it's called that. It was a theater, like the Mayan theater. And uh, we played that show. And Yulara was there. My best friend was there. She's here somewhere. When we finished Paper Planes, because my flight was the 11 p.m. overnight flight on the Sunday, I quickly ran out the back alley. My friend took me to the airport, and I flew back to school in order to make it time Monday morning. <laughs> yeah. So that was a very important time for me because I learned the importance of focus. I learned the importance of, of looking inward in order to execute outward. Sometimes we have to be brave enough to assume our own power instead of our own powerlessness um, to take control of our own life. And it's interesting because I channel that time a lot. Instead of us looking outward to Google or to reverse engineer somebody else's career or to, uh, to try to look at Instagram to see what other people are doing, it's important to look inside. What matters to you? What do you want to do? So that was that time. That was that time. And I learned a lot working from Maya. I learned a lot. You know, she's very openly critical. This concept of own your voice is something that she definitely, she owns hers, that's for damn sure. Um, my second year at school, my second year at school, I didn't have the tour anymore. 
and I was focused on, on school and on learning. Um, but I definitely kind of had a bit of a depression, you know, kind of like the vibe went down. It was so nice to actually have to get away on the weekends and, and focus on something that I love because it gave me a sense of purpose. When I was just doing that second year, it didn't feel as good. I felt a bit of that imposter syndrome. Like you're the, you're like, you're the diversity check mark that got into Harvard. You know what I mean? Like that's how people kind of throw a bit of shade like that. And it was good, I liked learning, but at the same time, it's a lot of that like um, masculine way of learning and masculine way of teaching, which is like being loud and aggressive and like the, the, as long as you say it's super loud and super confident, it's right. It's like, no, you know, it's not right. That's not a good way to think about things and it's not nuanced. And it's not, it's not easy for me to get in because I don't even subscribe to this way of communicating. Do you know what I mean? So, so that was a tough second year. When I, was at, when I was in Boston going through this year, one thing I started to notice was um, the runners runners out in Boston. Anyone run here in the audience? Any runners in the room? Yeah, you know, we out here like soul cycle and shit, but sometimes we run. Yeah. <laughs> Box Union and all that. So berries, yeah, yeah. So we had the running. And it's hailing, okay, hailing in Boston. Hailing in Boston. Snowing, raining. And Boston runners be out there running. Like it's no thing. And I loved it. I was like, this is so honest. Like, this is so raw, you know? Like, if you, if you run three miles in the snow, no one can take that away from you. They can't say, oh, you, you did that because you're queer, or you did that because you're Indian, or because you're brown, or because you're female, or because you're black. Like, it's just an honest accomplishment. No one can start saying they can undermine your achievements, you know? So I started to run. I started to run my ass off. And I would start small. I said, Kieran, can you run one mile? You know, can you run one mile? Worst comes to worst, you Uber yourself home. You know, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah, no one needs to know. It's your own journey. You know, it's a private journey. <laughs> so I would run slow, slow. Can you go to this bridge, next bridge, next bridge? And then I used to run with my friends. I used to love it. I used to love it because it rebuilt up my own sense of confidence and my own sense of purpose and my own sense of believing myself. Sometimes when I feel down, that's the best thing to do is reinvest in the things that make you feel powerful and strong and good. Reinvest in your skill sets. Yeah. When you go through a breakup, you have like, I'm really good at this. Okay. <laughs> really good at this. <laughs> so a friend of mine got me psyched up and ready to go run the London Marathon. Okay. Run the London Marathon. So at the end of my second year at Harvard, about to graduate, three of us go and run, uh, go, to the go to London to start running this London Marathon. Okay. London Marathon. I get to the, uh, the start line of the London Marathon, and I realize I'm about to be on day one of my period. Okay, day one of my cycle. Now listen, for those of you in the room who don't have a period, <laughs> let me tell you what you're not trying to do on day one of your cycle, <laughs> okay? Is run 26 miles. Yeah, we can all understand that, right? That's just simple. So, so as any of us who have been caught unprepared, I start going through my options. So I'm like, toilet paper, quick fix. Okay, not gonna work for 26 miles. All right, listen, all of us been in the office, toilet paper, quick fix, we all good, but like four hours of running. Yeah, it's like, come on. So then, second option, a pad. No, you can't use that. Chafing is a real issue on a marathon course. I didn't have one, blah, blah, blah. I didn't have a menstrual cup. That, I don't even know if that was as big even in 2015 when this run was happening. And then a tampon, I mean, I guess so. I didn't want like a half in, half out situation while I'm trying to go run four hours. There's no privacy on a marathon course to change one out. I wasn't gonna like run with my second tampon like ready to go, like what the fuck, you know? So, so the options were just not amenable at the time. So I was like, I'd rather bleed freely and just run than deal with any of these products that are not appropriate for this situation at the time. And the interesting thing too is that I was like, 
wow, what do people do in this situation? Like, how have I never thought of this before? I guess I skipped out when I was running. I would just chill for those couple of days each month, as we all do. Um, so, so I remember thinking, like, wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run bleeding freely. And I, and I knew it was radical, but I also was like, listen, bleeding from anywhere running 26 miles is like a punk rock move, if you ask me. You know, it's like... <laughs> If, if men were running bleeding from anywhere, you know, they'd be hella Instagramming, documenting, like doing the most, you know, getting each other awards and shit. I'm like, we out here bleeding. We out here bleeding and cooking, bleeding and running, bleeding and leading meetings. Like, right, no one talks about that. Truly, truly, it's so amazing, it's amazing. So, so I'm running, I'm running, and I, it's am it was so liberating. It was the coolest experience. It was so cool, it really was. And so, um, so I run. And I swear, I was just trying to cross the finish line and, and I made it and we crossed the finish line. And it was a great time. It was like four hours, 26 minutes, some, a great time, respectable. And, uh, and, and I wrote about it. This, this marathon happened, I felt really good. And I was like, this, we need to talk about this. Like, why are we not talking about periods? It's the most normal part of the female identifying anatomy and no one talks about it. And when I was running, I remember thinking, wow, I was in such a position of privilege to even make this decision to begin with. But folks around the world, millions of women, people who bleed, trans men, they don't have that same uh, ability to make those choices. I grew up between India and New York. I know about how deep the stigma runs. And stigma, you know, the inability to talk about something very, very normal, is one of the most effective forms of oppression. Because it denies you the ability to talk comfortably and confidently about something that matters to you about something that would educate you, about something that would empower you, about something that would make you feel dignified in your own body. So interesting, I went to an all-girls school, but still, if we were in the presence of a guy, we would hush. The guy should just walk away if he doesn't want to hear it. We out here changing tips, you know, trying to learn from each other. Yeah. So interesting how deep that stigma runs. So I wrote about this, I wrote about this. I wrote about how it affects us here, how it affects us in the, uh, in, in the prison system, how women who are incarcerated barely at lack access to the products they need, homeless women, the fact that tampons are taxed uh, in the same way Viagra is, even though tampons and Viagra are not by no means co comparable uh, use cases. Um, and this story that I published, this story went viral. The story went viral. Oprah started posting about it. Rosie O'Donnell started tweeting at me, I love you and your period. I'm like, thank you, Rosie. It's fucking awesome. Uh, Broad City was posting about it. It was a whole thing. And I wasn't expecting that. I was just posting it on my, in my, uh, my Facebook to, you know, to get some likes, teach my friends and family about something. I know I'm sort of known as like the feminist in my group. So this happened. This story went viral. And that was a really important time for me because sometimes when we're just brave enough to do something for ourselves, we may not realize the profound impact and how brave you can be for other people just by showing up for yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm out here trying to do it every day. Like, own your voice, don't be afraid. Like, set your pussy free, you know, do the whole fucking thing. Yeah, we out here, we out here. So when this story went viral, I remember thinking like, what's next? I graduated from Harvard. I was just trying to go and maybe work at Spotify or go and work at YouTube or do that thing where I described to you earlier. I want to be a gatekeeper who signs all the really dope bands so that we have a mixture of offerings in, in top 40. But when this story went viral, it took me on a different path. It took me on a different path to say, what does it mean to be an activist in 2015? What does it mean to be a young person who doesn't have a full-time job so you can just be a free agent to say whatever? 
And a mentor of mine, Catherine McKinnon, who's a very, very um, well-known law professor at Harvard in sex equality, guided me and said, you are not, not, you're not uh, working for anybody. You don't have any restrictions. You can just speak to every press that you want. And so I started having different folks who had been in the menstrual health and equity space for many, many years start teaching me and also passing the mic, you know, listing out different organizations all over the world who had been in this space and who are looking for funding, who are looking for attention, who are looking to spread their work, who are doing incredible work. When that happened, I remember uh, getting asked to speak a lot publicly. And when that would happen, they would say, okay, and you're a drummer, you know, like play us some tunes, you know, play us some songs, Gandhi. And I'd be like, listen, I don't have any of my own music. Like, I'm just the drummer for somebody else. And, uh, and so then they said, well, maybe you should write some music. You have a lot to say, you know. So I started learning how to produce in that time, 2015. I've been producing now for four years. Any Ableton users in the room? Ableton producers, film, film scorers, you know? Yeah, exactly, cool. So in 2015, 2016, 2017, that was my time of writing music and taking a lot of these ideas. A friend of mine had sent me uh, the t-shirt, the t-shirt, uh, the future is female. You all know this t-shirt, the future is female. And I loved this phrase. And listen, when I was running that marathon, people would be sending me pins, t-shirts, things from all around the world. Feminists love fucking pins. That's like a whole thing. <laughs> pins for days, you know. I don't need this many pins. Like, I'm good. And many of the feminist slogans as well were uh, rooted in a lot of anger, a lot of anger. And we need that. We need all types of activism because so much of the pain that comes, of course, is going to be angry. But when I ran, I felt joyful. I felt liberated. And my feminism and my activism has often been rooted in a sense of positivity. And so when I saw this phrase, the future is female, I liked it because it positioned femininity as something aspirational. People ask me all the time, how do we have more women breaking into hip hop? How do we have more women breaking into the top CEO positions? I'm like, I'm not even interested in us as women and femmes and female identifying folks going where the men have been. I'm interested in us building our own paradigms, in reinventing different systems that from the ground up work for a different diverse array of people. Does that make sense? So when I saw this futurist female, I was like, I love this, I love this. And listen, rubs people the wrong way sometimes. It's like when we say black lives matter, and they come at us with that all lives matter type thing. You know, it's like, listen, all lives are not being mass incarcerated and gunned down in this country the way black lives are. So we have to continue to remind you until that work is no longer necessary, okay? Similarly, when we say the future is female, it's, it's not about men or female. It's like when we say save the dolphins, it doesn't mean kill the whales. <laughs> doesn't mean kill the whales. So when we say future is female, it's about valuing the femininity in all of us. It's about saying, what if instead of us leading from this brute force aggression that we have in the White House, and I had definitely at Harvard Business School, what if we led instead from emotional intelligence and peacekeeping as a priority? What if instead we led with collaboration instead of assuming that competitiveness and hierarchy is the only way to succeed? What if we were linked and not ranked, as Gloria Steinem so astutely once put it? So the idea is not about criticizing masculinity. It's about valuing femininity just as much as we value what the men are doing. Does that make sense? And that's what's lacking for me in today's movement. And that's what we're moving towards. The second thing I'd like to mention um, before we shift over into the, the Q&A portion of the evening is that this new sort of fourth wave of feminism that we're in is very unique, actually. It's very unique. 
and it's unique because of the inclusion of social media. When I wrote my story and it went viral, people couldn't really get it wrong because I wrote it. Back in the day in the 1920s when women were trying to get the vote, they had to depend on journalists who were male identifying to tell their story. 1990s, Riot Girl, they would show up to the rock and roll meetings and the men would ask them, but what the fuck they're wearing? Like, no, we're trying to out here be playing music. We get to control the narrative with social media, which is very, very powerful and very, very different. And if we don't own our own narrative, somebody else will do it for us and they'll mess it up. That's why I like making my own music. It's like end to end. I open the laptop, I sing into it, I make a beat, I put it out, done, mine. Makes sense? It's dope. It's the best. Self-empowerment. So that's the first thing, this, this idea of being able to own the narrative and own the voice. And I have my own social media channel and I'm telling my own audience what's authentic from me and it's working. That's the best thing. And, and then the second is sort of this notion of moving people from behind their screens into the streets. Black Lives Matter taught us that and, and it enabled the Women's March of 2017 to learn from that. And it ended up being the largest single day march in the history of the planet all over the world. Amazing. And people like to throw shade at each other's activism. Oh, you just write checks. Oh, you just are a tweeter. Oh, you just, you know, run free bleeding, free bleeding marathon. You know. But you see, we need everyone's activism because I may not know how to use Twitter. And look at Twitter, Black Lives Matter, the hashtag moved us from behind the screens into the streets, changing how we do things in this country, influencing culture. It's so powerful. So I'm all about that. What is the thing that you would be doing anyway that you're good at, that you enjoy doing? And what is the thing that you really care about in this world? And how can you use that joyfulness and that excitement and that enthusiasm to make change? And I, I wanted to do this event for that reason, because that's sort of the, the mentality of, of how for change and this movement from being enthusiastic about something to creating social impact. So thank you so much for listening to my story this evening. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And I'll just invite Jacques to join All right. Me. Now we're going to chat. And we'll chat. I feel like we could chat for weeks with all the things that you touched on that are important. Um, I am beholden to discuss more specifically storytelling. It's how for change is about using storytelling to affect positive change. Um, and you know, we think we all think we know what storytelling is, at least in a traditional sense. But we're telling stories in lots of different ways. Um, like, for instance, your name is a, a story. Your look, your music, like there's a story being told in all the choices that you make. And so, curious how you see storytelling playing out in all the various things that you do and the choices that you've made that have led you to this point. And what storytelling, and more generally, what storytelling means to you? Um, that's a good question. That's cool. I never really thought of storytelling as like a choice in name or like loving the color yellow. But I guess you're right. There's a story for everything. So that's cool. Um, I think I learned the value of storytelling when the marathon story went viral. It really was that moment. Because I was just writing for my community. And then another blog had found it and, and like messaged me and said, can we republish it? Then they republished it, and then Australia republished it, and then the BBC was publishing it, New York Times, and it just was a whole thing. And I think it's as I mentioned earlier, sometimes we assume our own powerlessness and never our own power. And 
understanding that something that you're going through is very possibly something that somebody else is going through is an important thing for us all to remember. And that's why I do say this thing of own your voice, because as soon as somebody else said it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I thank you for saying it because now I don't feel like I'm by myself, you know. And so I think uh, I think storytelling has enormous value to just be brave enough to say your truth, hoping that it helps somebody else. And when were you aware that like uh, that storytelling was activism? Like when you realized, like, because you obviously had always cared about social issues, but you're also very creative, and they seem to be in the story that you told, sort of separate things for you. But at one, some point, they became one thing. Mm. What, uh, what point were you made? Were, did that awareness hit you that you were going to use storytelling to affect social change? That's a cool question. I think it's knowing the personal journey of like feeling super upset about something or depressed or unhappy and then being like really empowered by that unhappiness and taking control of your own life and doing something. And then I would like be telling my friends about this story and they would be like super lit on it and excited for whatever it is that they were going to go and do. Or they'd be like, oh, on your social media, everything's looking amazing. I didn't even know you were going through shit when you were working at Interscope or that you were not loving it by the end of your two years. Or same as Harvard. Like I, w I didn't know that you were not like feeling your best and that you were running to like re-up your own confidence level. And so that feedbacking mechanism is something that we can all remember that in us being brave enough to share a time of being vulnerable to then feeling empowered. And it's a constant cycle, you know, it's a constant cycle. We might be able to tell somebody else. I think it's also the reason why we all listen to music or watch Netflix or see important films because we are hoping to walk away with that little bit of nugget for our own life, inspiration and ideas for our own life. So I think that's why storytelling is an activist uh, move. Yeah, and speaking of that, like, one of the things I love about you in the five minutes I've known you is that you are, like, it's really important for you to empower other people. I mean, you're, you're doing your thing, you care about yourself, but, like, for you, it's clear that getting other people to speak their truth and tell yeah. their stories is important. So what do you say to people who, like, you know, they aren't you, you know, they don't feel the confidence that you have and been on the journey that you have, but they have something to say. And um, I don't want you to just throw out, you know, you. inspirational, you. yeah, but, like, I think one thing that came to mind when you were asking me that question, and you keep asking me like three questions and one is so unfair, but I'm trying to think. <laughs> Classic. Trying to fit it all in yeah, in 10 yeah, minutes. Yeah. No, so this one thing that you mentioned that I thought of was um, about wanting to give. Uh, I think it's two things. The first one that I wanted to mention, or I'll just focus on one, the one thing. When I was growing up, my mom used to say to my brother and sister and I, guilt is a wasted emotion. Yeah, I love that you love that. Yeah, Guilt is a wasted emotion. And I think only now do I really understand what she meant, which is that if you feel bad about your privilege or you like feel bad that you're in a good situation, like we don't care that now you feel bad that your life is so good. Like, fuck you, you know, like, like do something. And that's what she raised us with, is like, we don't need you to feel bad that you're so happy playing the drums or that you're going to these prestigious universities. We need you to go there and be excellent at it and bring everybody up with you. That's what we need. Do you know what I mean? We don't need you to feel bad that you went to these places and you did these things. We need you to go and now do something with it because you understand the other side. And, and I think that's it. And I, I also, it's so profound. You know, she also says we are to the universe only as much as we give back to it. And that's another very futurist female concept, is that everything is linked. Everything is, it's not about putting somebody else down. It'll come back to you so quick. 
the more you give, the more you receive. It's so simple. It really is. And twice, twice a month, I go into the prison system. There's a, in car, there's a juvenile hall, eight minutes from my hipster loft in downtown LA. Eight minutes. I had no idea until I started working with this organization. I go in twice a month, 14-year-old girls incarcerated. It's wrong. It's wrong. And I bring my DJ rig, and I faithfully download whatever fucking trap, his misogynist shit that they have me download. And then I also like pad it with like all my other like uplifting, like tribal music from around the world, you know. And I and I just DJ with them, and they're so good at it, and they love it. Like once I remember I went there like last month, and uh, I had left the DJ thing for a second to talk to some of the other girls about like misogynism. And then we were listening to this mashup of like uh, "Humble" by Kendrick Lamar, and this, and I, we all turned around, and this tiny girl, 12 years old, was like mashing up Kendrick Lamar because she had figured it out in the time that we had left her for seven minutes. It was amazing. It was so good. So I share that because uh, I do think it's the twofold. It's one, understanding we don't care about you feeling bad for your privilege. You just need to make sure that you're not oppressing somebody else with it, and you need to make sure that you're doing something positive with it. And then the second thing is that I think it just makes me happy. It's joyful. <laughs> yeah, and it was like you were saying, everybody has something to contribute and not to judge it. It's just like, this is what you do. This is where you're from. This is your perspective. Just, you know, bring it to the table. Um, we're going to, we're a little limited on time. Unfortunately, we could talk forever, but I'm going to open it up to the audience uh, while we can and, and take some questions and, and see what this brilliant group of people have to ask you or say to you. Um, I'm asking from a space of like the fear that we've been taught so you know you kind of see I also went to an all-girls school I grew up in London um, and the biggest fear was getting a period stain yeah, yeah. and I remember one time this girl that was bullying me because she was like huge said to me oh you've probably got brown stains on your knickers sure, that's what sure. we call them yeah, yeah. I didn't even know what she meant because I hadn't gotten my period yet because I was 12. Yeah. So were you not afraid that as you're running, you would get some kind of stain yeah, yeah. and someone would call you out yeah. and shame you? Yeah, you know, it did happen. This, oh, this, and out of like sweet solidarity too, it was an older Korean woman and like real like had my back style. She was like, honey, like you're bleeding, like, you know, fix, clean it up, you know? And I was like, oh, thank you. But I think, um, but I think I was just so, I was so proud of myself. I think that was what it is. I think I genuinely was just like, I'm, I, I never run a marathon before. You know, I'm out here like it's mile 18. Like, this is amazing. Like, I never run 18 miles in my life. You train, you run about 15, 16 at the most. So I think I, think I, I don't know if it was in a different context if I would have had that same empowerment. I don't think I could be like having a full-time job at fucking Spotify, like out here free bleeding. I mean, you know, you know, there's only some spaces that you can be doing. I mean, obviously that's the world. When we design our own spaces, we're gonna have different things that are the new norm. But I think that I knew there was power in the fact that I was running. If you're on the side eating popcorn, watching all these marathoners run by, you're not gonna shame a fucking marathon runner. I'm out here running and bleeding. What have you done today? Right? It's amazing. So, so I think I was really aware of that. But I do agree with you that like when I'm, if I'm not in that scenario, it's not as an empowering move. And women shame women. each other for sure, for sure. It's a mixture. It's like a mixture of like a sister solidarity. Like you're hella bleeding, sis. Like just in case you know you're not trying to bleed freely. Like that's what's happening right now. So I think it's a it's a mixture. But of course we have to be aware and 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 liberated in our choices. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, you're very inspiring. I'm a friend of Jacques, and that's why I came, but I'm so happy I did. Jacques is a great feminist, if oh, yes, anyone doesn't is. know that. He's a fabulous feminist. Ah, <laughs> yes. Um, so I have kind of a generic question, but um, what's next? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the thing that's really inspiring me these days, kind of in the theme of like investing in my own drumming, investing in my own running, it's really investing in my own producing skills. And it's been a really cool journey of the past four years, like learning Ableton, opening up my laptop and making something. Because in the industry, if I have an idea, most of the time uh, the vocalist or the, the, the instrumentalist has this like notion that I have to work with the top producers in order to now get my song out. And I want to be able to have an inspiration in my yellow car, drive home to my yellow loft, open up my laptop, and make the song end to end, not having that dependency. I want to make the song as close to the moment of inspiration as possible. And so I've been spending a lot of time between working and performing and touring and, and talking about these important issues, just being able to make the music that I think can change the world. And when I made Future is Female, that story ended up going viral on the Spotify charts, which was a really important testament to this mentality. And have any, have you, any of you seen the MIA documentary? She just put it out a couple weeks ago, months ago. So she, when, when I watched it, even for me having worked with her, I didn't know how in the field she was. Like she's out here with her own little cameras, like in the most dangerous parts of Sri Lanka because she believed in documenting her story. And, and that's what's next for me, is putting out a long-form body of work that you know, takes my ideas on feminism, on the future is female, on love energy, on running, on eating clean, on higher vibrations, on lifting the collective consciousness, but knowing that I got to be the one leading it and making it. And not to say that it won't be collaborative, but I don't want to be dependent on somebody else's skill sets to tell my story. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. You're quite inspirational. I also identify with your story quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I was actually at Bonnaroo in 2010. I, I watched the Recorporation and, and the entire watched you play so basically. Rough. That's but, so awesome. But uh, um, wow. I wanted to ask about your ideas of have you completely removed the idea of politics uh, or maybe going into politics later in your life, or have you considered maybe going back in and maybe changing the paradigm to a more you know, logical stance yeah, with a that. with a feminine output. You know, like because uh, I'm 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 kind of facing similar qualms. I've thought about doing it, but yeah. I'm kind of on the outside looking in at this point. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I, I love that question. I think um, we should have a coffee and decide together. What's I would the love best that. For us. I would love that. <laughs> yeah, <That's> because <laughs> I think we saw AOC like do it. Yes. You know, yeah. and yeah, exactly. and I'm watching your Instagram, and I'm like, you're the you're millennial as fuck. Like, like that would have not been okay even three years ago right. to spend so much time on your Instagram. Like, that would have been really inappropriate. But she's showing it's the opposite. It's the way to engage. So I think she's an inspiration for me to show like you are able to be yourself, but operate in a system that oftentimes encourages you to not be yourself. Right. So I think it would be a joy to come back around at some point and do that. But it's also fun to be a musician. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so much more fun. Oh, yeah. I, I hear you. I hear you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, Raz. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Is there anything there back in the dark? Can't see. Nope. Anybody else? Oh, there we go. Um, I'm, I'm a member here at Neuhaus and um, was fortunate to sit in on a, a men's group that just started here two weeks oh. ago. 
and uh, it was really it was really inspiring. There was just um, probably about a dozen guys that got together, diverse group, really thoughtful, deep, caring men, which is inspiring for me to just yeah. be in that room. And I think you know some of the the questions that we all are passing back and forth. You know, what what is our role? What is yeah. what what do we do? And and I think. You know, whether it's in my own experience or reading, we hear about, you know, of course, listening. And it is a season to be a little uncomfortable. And, like, mm. maybe that's what we should do is be quiet and be uncomfortable and experience <laughs> that. And so I think just I can't help but wonder what you would say yeah. in your position and your experience. And this I is an opportunity that. for me to ask someone Thank like you. yourself and just curious. No, what, that's what you a would cool say. question. I love that. I think... Um, the main thing that kind of was coming to mind when you were sharing that, first of all, that's so cool that that happened. That's awesome. And that's cool that you got to go to that. Um, sometimes what's fun is like in my talks and in my work, it's usually men who are like doing the sound or like hired for the event, but they have nothing to do with the event, but they're like listening to all this feminist stuff. So I kind of remember like what's the, what would be the flip side if I could be a fly on the wall in that space, I would learn a lot. I think the thing that came to mind when he asked that question is, even the conversation around diversity and inclusion kind of has a problematic tone to it because the assumption is that we would be so lucky to be in your spaces. Does that make sense? Like, oh, like they're doing us the favor. I'm like out here at Harvard, like providing people with the funkiest cool party experiences, like bringing my musician positive energy to the space. I, I'll go into very heteronormative spaces and I'll be like, y'all need more gay people in here. Like y'all need more color in here, right? So, so this idea of diversity and inclusion where they're doing us the favor, I think that's the main thing that I'm interested in shifting. And I'm interested in us going and forming our own spaces and our own communities and our own things that are really amazing and popping such that those communities are coming to us. And so if I were in that space, one thing I would share with the men is, is how much do you have to learn? How lucky are you? Not like you're doing us the favor by listening. It's like, listen so that you can learn something. Like, flip it in your mind that it's not about getting out of the way just to be nice. It's because you have something to learn. And we have to be self-aware to value the contributions of folks who don't tend to be in the mainstream leadership positions. And then the, the flip is also true for us then, when they do give us that space and that solidarity and that collaborative open energy, to not be then retroactively punishing you know, and negative and like, fuck you, and you're so annoying. Because then, I don't know, it's not good. It, then it, 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 it perpetuates the, the problem. So that's what I would say, remembering that we have so much to learn from each other, and we would both be so lucky to learn from each other. Now right, we got time for one more question. That's my favorite row right here. No so pressure. My favorite row. It's the last question, no pressure. Hi. Uh, my name is Lynette. Hi, Jack. Hi. Everybody knows Jack. <laughs> um, so I see myself in you. You're probably, I don't know, in your 20s? 30. Oh, my God. Okay. I'm in my mid-30s, Puerto Rican, born and raised. And I've been through some shit in my life. And I feel like the universe need more people like you, me, and a lot of other women here. So how, how can we help you, right, and other women in this industry? I'm a filmmaker, I'm a storyteller, I'm an actor, and I'm a producer. But it's hard to be a woman or a woman of color in the States. But how can we help you elevate this? Because I, I think 
what you're starting, I mean, you're starting it with you, but there's a lot of other people. So I don't know. How can I help you? If I can interject, that was going to be the thing after this. (laughs) We need you to point people places. Just say what you got to say. Send them to your merch. Send them to your site. Just (laughs) send them places. Very sweet. Um, that's so. It's so interesting. It's so much easier to give than to receive. I don't know. Um, I think. Uh, I think one thing that's fun about being a musician and doing things independently and traveling to speak publicly and making of making my work financially sustainable is when different folks see me and put me on. And they say, oh, we have this uh, corporate event, which means there's a budget. And we would love to have you come and perform. Or Pandora last year had like a big pride programming event and they had me come and keynote, which was such a pleasure because it was dual work. I got to share some of my stories and my ideas on, on queerness today. But also, now I just met a bunch of folks at Pandora who independently are helping me playlist the music that otherwise, if, unless I was signed, wouldn't get playlisted. So I think, obviously, um, opportunities to, to speak is always so wonderful, to bring my work to people who either need it or who would just be so re-energized to hear it, people who love live music and drumming, um, folks in the music industry uh, who, who book shows, who uh, playlist things. I think uh, even in the film industry, licensing the music is a huge source of income for independent artists and allows me to do things um, volunteering as well. You know, it's like it's, uh, what's the word? It, um, offsets it income wise so those are some of the things that would be wonderful um, so thank you uh, I do have my merch table here um, 10% of it we actually do send out to Planned Parenthood at the end of each year which is awesome Yeah, and we have features female own your voice these mock necks are the best we have some drumsticks if there's any drummers in the room we're selling those um, and then Madam Gandhi, stay in touch on my, on my Instagram. If there's any questions that didn't get answered this evening, just send me a, a message and we'll keep chatting. Thank you so much. Yeah, and last but not least, uh, we have a tradition because, you know, we're howling out for positive social change. So you want to howl with us? Yeah. Everybody howl? Everybody ready to howl? Wait, wait, wait. Count of three. One, two, three. Howl! Yeah, round of applause for everybody. Thank you. All right, the night's just getting started. There's lots of cool stuff happening. Most importantly, Madam Gandhi is going to play some music for us. And if you don't think she's awesome already, then something's wrong with you. But wait till you hear her music. Thanks for coming. Thank you. That's all we have time for today. Join us next time for How for Change. And until then, follow us on social media at How for Change. Download the How for Change app, both for iOS and Android, and show us how you're making a difference in the world. Thank you.